Hey, you're listening to The Credit Roll, an original podcast by Jamun. I'm a beneath a filmmaker, and like a lot of you tuning in, I'm looking to get better at what I do. In every episode of this show, I'll be speaking with professionals in the Indian film industry, discussing their journey, their process, and all the struggles they've faced along the way. Today, we're talking to sound designer Sushmit Nath. Sorry, I already screwed that up. <laughs> He's got an incredible filmography, having worked as a sound designer on some of the best indie films to come out of India, like Gurvinder Singh's The Fourth Direction and Bitter Chestnut, as well as Reema Das's Bulbul Can Sing. He's also worked on some bigger Bollywood films like Anurag Kashyap's Raman Raghav 2.0 and the 2014 Ayushman Karana Bevakufia. On top of all this, he's worked on series like Ghost Stories, a few documentaries, and a whole bunch of films as well. So basically, Shusmith, you've done a bit of everything. <laughs> and, and I'm really excited to have you here today and to talk to you about sound design and what you do. So Shusmith, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling me. And uh, of course, letting me maybe share whatever I have gathered over the years. So yeah, thank you. Well, let's jump right in. Can you talk to me a little bit about what sound design is and what a sound designer does? By a sound designer, we mean a person who is kind of responsible for all the sound that you hear in a film. That includes, of course, your dialogues, all the kind of effects and uh, the ambiences, the atmospheres that you hear. And of course, the folly. Normally, when you shoot, there's hardly any sound there. Most of it, what we do is uh, kind of recreated later on in the post-production stage. Kind of create an atmosphere which is convincing enough for an audience to kind of feel that in terms of space and time, you are there where the action is happening on screen. Right. So would you say you're kind of building the sonic identity of a film in a way? Yes. Most important part is to kind of identify you know, what kind of zone the film is, what is it trying to say, what are the characters going through, what is the mise-en-scene, everything. And then try to interpret it with sounds. It's easier to believe in something which you can see. And uh, since uh, sound makes you feel, it's very tricky because it's very subjective. Sometimes if I interpret a scene in a certain way, there could be 10 different ways. Normally, that's what, aesthetically speaking, is the first requirement to kind of arrive at a point where you think like, okay, we can approach this particular scene in a, this way and then take it forward scene by scene. And, you know, you mentioned sound making us feel things. And I wanted to ask, in your opinion, what is it about sounds that make them such an important element in film? Sound is something which is inward, mm. like it goes into your body. It's kind of a exercise in space and time and make you believe that you are there and seeing that story. I mean, every other aspect of filmmaking also does the same and sound also does it. The difference, I think, is it's kind of the last stage in post-production and the last stage of mm -hmm. filmmaking. And now it's kind of you and the director, you know, take the mantle forward and make it believable. I was reading that a lot of sound designers want their work to be invisible, to not stand out to them, that that is the sign of good sound design. And I'm wondering, do you agree or do you think something else makes good sound design? There always would be some scenes in a film where you might want to draw some attention. 
let's say if you're doing a science fiction or, you know, an action film or something, there you will have to do a bit of uh, more work with sound so that you kind of draw the attention, make those sequences a bit more heavy and make you believe that it's happening in front of you. But in films which are more experiential and, you know, more grounded towards reality, you would not like to draw attention with regards to sound and make it just there as a bed. I think both approaches, it depends on the film, totally depends on the film and also the vision of the director. Because every other director have their own interpretation, have their own thought process with regards to sound. So you kind of have to go with the director's vision and then channel away and move forward. What do you think are the most important skills you need to have as a sound designer? Sometimes, you know, in order to kind of make a scene work with regards to sound, you might be spending like three to four days, maybe five days. And you should also know that, no, I mean, you have to spend that much time to kind of get it working. So definitely the first thing is patience because technicalities you'll always learn. There are so many institutes and these days you have so many videos on YouTube and so much of content. When we were studying in film school, there was hardly so much of material available online. So all of that and aesthetics, you watch more films, you build on that. So all of that will also kind of keep on improving. A lot of people come to this, you know, line of profession thinking that it's very glamorous and like you'll get a lot of attention and all of it. It's not glamorous for sure. Okay, sound design is not glamorous. Yeah, I mean, you'll have to spend tons of hours in the studio, Mm -hmm. in a closed room with you and your system, you know. So, yeah, you have to be comfortable also with that kind of situation. Rest, everything comes along. Who are you working most closely with as a sound designer? I mean, yes, we have the system, but in terms of people and roles, you also mentioned the director. So who are you working most closely with? Definitely film is a director's medium. And uh, the most important thing is whether you kind of understand what the director wants to portray on screen, what he wants to say, what the film talks about, and kind of arrive at the same page. Because it's very important to have a tuning with the director, otherwise things will fall apart. So how much do you actually work with the other sound people? I know that there's several roles in terms of sound. So are you working closely with those people as well? Well, uh, see, when I started off, uh, I used to do a lot of location sound. Chautikud, the fourth direction was, you can say, my first film in terms of location sound and the sound design, where I did both. Mm -hmm. I prefer doing both. You know, when I'm there on set and if I'm doing location sound, I'm kind of concentrating on the dialogues, recording on the dialogues and all. And if I've read the script already, kind of try and interpret what it could be, let's say, when I'm designing the sound. And also, you know, sometimes invariably in a lot of locations, you chance upon some interesting sound. It could be some ambient sound or something, you know, and you feel like, okay, if this sound is there, it might work really nicely in the scene. So that also kind of helps. Also, it works the opposite way as well. You know, sometimes you have certain sounds in the location and you feel like, okay, this definitely can't go along with. So you kind of have a benchmark in the sense like if you're doing both, especially in location, if you're a sound designer and you that what all things can be worked upon which might work in post. Like for example, this one scene in Fourth Direction, there's this scene where the dog dies and you know, they're taking him through that trawler or cremation or whatever. So what had happened was they had sedated the dog so that it could mimic that it's dead. Now there was this cow shed right next to where the scene was happening. 
and there were these two young cows and all. No? They felt as if this dog is dead. It felt like they were crying, and it was so powerful. And I immediately went and asked my assistants, like, let's take the mic there and let's record that. And we did use that as one of the layers in the scene when the dog was being carried away. So something like that, you know, it's impossible that you could imagine that, okay, I'll interpret the scene in this way, in post. So, you know, there are sometimes really beautiful accidents that happen on shoot in terms of sound. And uh, it just helps you, you know, just weave the sounds together. So Gurvinder's Chauti Code, I had done both. Post stories also, I had done both location and post. In Machines also, if you've seen that. It's a documentary. Yeah. So that was very intense with locations. But yeah, I prefer doing both. But now, yeah, of course, I mean, it's very taxing also. So can't do all. But yeah, I prefer both. I imagine in that way, you just have more control over the ultimate sound design that you're going with. I guess it's maybe similar to a screenwriter directing their own film in a way. Absolutely. In terms of technicalities, like I'll try to put it in very simple words. See, no location in India is quiet or silent. Anywhere you go, there's (laughs) some construction, something is happening, you know. But to save our souls, the technology has advanced a lot and you have good plugins and noise cancellation suites where you can cancel a lot. Now, if you are quite adept with uh, handling those kind of softwares and you know how much you can clean, so with some sort of noise on location, you can do with. If you are a sound designer, you know, okay, I can clean this much. Or if you know, okay, I cannot clean beyond this one, then you go and tell the director or the AD or the producer that, okay, no, I'm telling you in advance that we can't pull this off or whatever. You let them know. Then it's up to them whether they want to still go ahead. So that kind of clarity also comes through in terms of technical liabilities or compulsions or whatever. What was it that got you interested in sound design and filmmaking? You know, most of sound people had roots in music. So we had a band, we used to play metal and I was a drummer. So I got interested in trying to figure out how can we make our sound sound better, Okay. you know, in our initial days of band and all. So we started figuring out what all you can learn. So we got to know, okay, there is sound engineering, there is sound designing, all of it. Then we searched about the places where you can go and study. So that's how we got to know KFTI, there is other institute. And then finally, in the eventual turn, applying for the institute and getting through. Which is very difficult. It is difficult. To be frank, I was quite lucky to get through in the first attempt. Because back in those days, you hardly knew what were the questions that were asked. Right. I was also studying in brilliant tutorials for IIT and all of it. So there was so much of material available for those courses, but there was hardly anything for like, you know, how to apply. So I got through. That was lucky enough for me. I kind of went to the institute with a blank slate. Mm-hmm. To be frank, I hadn't watched much of world cinema before going there. It was mostly usual dose of Hollywood and Hollywood films. And once I started watching it, it was like new different world of cinema that I hardly knew existed, you know, and seeing all the masters and their films, it like really influenced me a lot. Like I always say that my life, it has always been pre-FTI and post-FTI. Right. Completely changed my point of view, how I used to see things, perceive things, interpret things. So yeah. 
Is there a particular way you think it helped you see sound differently than when you did before? Yes, yes. We were kind of given insights of how things were done. We were really lucky enough to kind of go to the institute when there were still exercises on film. Mm -hmm. Our initial projects were also done on film and we used to take those sound transfers from digital to film and editing on the film and everything. So it was like exploring a whole new world and also knowing how things happen. So that kind of built the interest more into how things are done. Right. I was looking at your IMDb and you went from doing just a few short films to working on a much bigger Bollywood film like Bevakufia as an assistant sound mixer. And from there, you started to get a lot more work with some of the films we already mentioned, like The Fourth Direction, Bitter Chestnut, and Bulbul Can Sing, Balikampa. What do you think was the key to getting to work on all of these films after you graduated? Is it sort of, you know, what they say, like networking is the key to getting all this work? Or do you think something else was involved? In this profession, I would not deny it. I would be really lying if I say there is no networking. So that is there. But like, you know, it can only happen once or twice. If you are not good enough, you won't be able to move your repertoire of work forward. So I feel it's a mix of both. Things improved in terms of my journey post Chautiku. That was my first film after I passed out. All the other films before that that you see were actually mostly done when I was still in the final year of my institute. Wow, okay. People like us, let's say editors, sound guys or camera people, they used to start assisting. I used to like two, three seniors work, you know, I could feel like, okay, they are doing something interesting. Their work like kind of connects with me. So I approached them and, you know, asked them if I could like come and assist you in a couple of projects. So I did that. I learned a lot about how on location or in post, there's so much of other things involved other than just recording sound or, you know, just sitting on it in your software and just, so there are so many things involved. So it kind of helped me groom, like, you know, approach everything holistically and all. And then Chotikut was my first film after I passed out. And Gurvinder actually had seen my diploma and he really liked it a lot. And that's how I got the film, actually. And which one was your diploma film? I had done two diplomas actually in my batch. Okay. He had seen Makara and uh, a Dream Animal. Yeah. Okay, right, right, right. Okay. So actually it was because of Dream Animal that he really liked it. He called me up and that was like an ideal start to my so-called career in the sense because absolutely I couldn't expect for a better film to start my journey with. And had you known of his work before that? I'm guessing uh, that you did, Mm -hmm. right, right, okay. So I'm curious, considering the diversity of your filmography, I mean, we've sort of established that. How do you choose the films you work on? Like, is there a particular type of film you find yourself gravitating towards? Stories that I feel connected with. I think that definitely is one of the very important yardsticks or criteria, whatever you want to say. Uh Also, the director what his or her films have been. Then, of course, you have this one conversation, a meeting, you talk about ideas and all. And then I leave it to my intuition. So if I feel like, okay, our energies match, because it's a lot about energies. If I feel that this energy is not matching right at the first day, definitely it won't match in the future as well. And, you know, 
while you're getting to work on all of these bigger feature film projects, what keeps you coming back to the shorts? Is it like what you were saying, like the story, or is it something else? Yes, creative satisfaction. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, because, I mean, if you see also in the sense, I have hardly done much Bollywood films, to be frank. Yeah. And um, neither do I get much calls, nor have I made calls. Because I hardly feel connected uh, to a lot of those films. And uh, to be frank, you know, if I don't feel it from within, there's no point jumping into a project just for the sake of building a, a body of work, which you don't feel connected to. Sure. So that is, I feel very important that you should feel connected to what you do. Then only something good will happen. And how do the two experiences differ as a sound designer? Like, for instance, is the experience of working on a lower budget film different? In a low budget film, so-called independent film, it's much more organic a process okay. because it's a smaller team. The budgets are less. So everyone wants to, of course, spend their money wisely. So you plan things well. Also, of course, it's the story and also it's more, you know, inclusive, the whole process. You are more connected to the director. The director is also more involved in the whole process. So that also makes it more enriching. So-called mainstream films, you don't have that level of... Uh, Intimacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's more uh, with regards to the commerce and there are so many other factors that has to be taken care of and everything. But like having said that, I really liked working with Deepakar because I felt after a really long time, one mainstream guy who really challenged me because he's like really up to it and he's knowledgeable within sound as well. And he's a musician. He does compose also. So, you know, you can't get away with just saying anything. So I guess there are some pros to working on a smaller budget film. It's not always that bad of a thing. You get maybe a little bit more intimacy. Maybe 20 years down the line, when I go back and look at my body of work and what I've done, yeah. if I can watch those films at that point of time, that would be more than enough for me. Yeah. I just don't want to go back 25 years from now or 20 years from now and say, shit, I shouldn't have done that project or it didn't work out and all. Yeah. So it's better to, you know, be careful now rather than repent later. So kind of that. Okay. I want to get a little bit more specific now and break down the work process of a sound designer. So we'll go from pre-production to production to post-production. So if we start with pre-production, what is that like as a sound designer? And you've already talked about this a little bit. So, you know, feel free to go about it as you please. See, in the pre-production process, the main assessment with regards to the sound designer would be to read the script and uh, get to know what's going to happen in terms of space and time, everything. And live with that script for a few days and make an assessment in terms of everything. Okay. Like, of course, reading the script and going through it is one thing. Then maybe when you, let's say, go for a tech recce, which is also part of the pre-production, you kind of go to those locations and see if there would be any probable problem that you might encounter there. Figure out your equipment. That is also an important thing. You know, what all mics you should be using depending on the location. The rest, I think, happens on shoot if you are going there on location. Because then only when the actual thing starts to unfold, you start getting more of a clarity. 
because it changes it always changes you know what's there on paper when you shoot it changes when you edit it changes when it finally comes to you it's completely different you know yeah. so to say that okay i'll do it this way or i'll interpret this way i mean it sounds good but hardly stays that way right. so i till date also mostly go with intuition in the sense like of course there are scenes in certain films that you kind of plan let's say when you see the first cut you kind of have a basic understanding of how to approach this and some scenes you just completely let it go and just come and start working and things start falling in place so yeah how do you then discuss sound with a director for instance the most tricky part with sound is sound is totally subjective a particular scene can be interpreted in so many different ways how i approach is um, i first of all have a conversation a detailed conversation with the director and kind of get to know what is there in his or her head how is he or she interpreting this scene in terms of sound yeah and then i take all those inputs and keep it within me and kind of try to build upon that okay and maybe some places where i feel okay maybe some other approach might work better so maybe i have two options in those having said that i've been really lucky to I've worked with people who have given me a lot of freedom to kind of do things how the way I wanted. Mostly like Gurvinder or Dibakar or even Rahul Jain who did Machines and definitely Reema. They gave me a lot of freedom to do whatever I wanted. I guess it came from again. I'll go back to that old thing: is this feeling of being connected. Okay, what's a typical day like for a sound designer during production when the film is being shot? Very boring. Okay, <laughs> because as sound recordist, when we go to location, we hardly work for two hours. Let's say in a typical twelve-hour shift, you hardly shoot for two or three hours. Okay. You know, rest of the time it's either your lighting or their rehearsals or yeah. there's something or the other. How I try to approach it is I do record a lot of rehearsals. Okay, because it helps me and my boom men to know where the shadows are, kind of understand all the lighting. You know, you know when you move with the characters, rather than the boom shadow coming on shot. If you kind of do the rehearsal nicely, you kind of know what exactly is the situation, and then you can avoid all those right. on shot. So this is one thing I always do. It also helps in a way. Let's say in a shot, there will be some person who said something, or there is some noise, background noise, or something. But that actor's performance was so good that the director is saying, like, you know, I don't feel like going for another one. So in that case, if you had recorded that rehearsal and if it was similar, then you've already got that sound there. So you don't have to be thinking about that. Or else, what I do is going for a wild take immediately. Okay. Because the character is still in moon, and if it's a matter of a line or two, then you can easily get it right then and there. Yeah. Also, yeah. if there is lighting or anything going on, and let's say we are in a location where there is a lot of atmosphere and all, which can be recorded, so I invariably start recording ambiences to better manage the free time rather than sitting waiting for the shot to happen. How do you deal with sort of like unusable or bad sound recordings you may have received? Traditionally, India has been a country which hasn't, you know, to be frank, uh, paid much attention to sound. Very few directors have paid that much attention. But there is this general notion that you can manage it in post. So people don't try to burden themselves too much with thinking like, okay, how we are going to do this or this, and uh, they think like, okay, we'll dub it and it will be fine. 
But like, I really am not a big fan of dubbing or ADR because uh, what happens is like, you know, you can always dub a scene. The quality of your sound will improve drastically, of course, because you're recording in a studio in a closed environment. But to get that same feeling, that same emotion in that room, it's really next to kind of impossible. It takes you, you know, out of different. the film a little bit. Totally. So if you see any mainstream film of the 90s, early 2000s, in fact, even mainstream or non-mainstream, whatever, you feel like a lot of films don't connect at all. And you can see, like, you can hear the dialogues crisp, clean and clear. But there is no feel yeah. because there is no performance. And until all this, you know, the actor is that skilled or like, you know, that versatile that he or she can recreate it exactly the way he or she felt six months or one year back. That really used to hardly happen, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I feel an exercise in futility, like trying to recreate it in dub. It never works. How do you ensure that what you've recorded fits into the reality of the film? Is it simply a matter of applying the right effects or treating the sound in a particular way? You know, we have this misconception that if it sounds clear, we feel more connected. It's absolutely a misconception because there have been experiments made and all. And the human ear is much more comfortable with noise as well. You know, it's just that how do you put that noise out there? Earlier, the approach was like your dialogue should be like clean and crisp, should not be any iota of noise anywhere. But if you see right. more contemporary work and everything, you will feel that the dialogues, you hear a bit of noise and it kind of gives you that impression of being there, especially. I mean, of course, there are a lot of things which gets into that. Like it's not only noise, you put reverbs, room reverbs to make that reflection and it makes you believe that, okay, that conversation is happening in the room panning, how you pan those dialogues. So there are a lot of elements involved in it, but it is totally not the thing that, you know, everything which is clean would be more pleasant in terms of your experience. Sure. If you take the example of Bulbul and Singh, you know how Rima used to shoot was, uh, she was like a one-man army. She used to, you know, shoot her film direct and she used to just use a Zoom H4N to just record the sound which invariably yeah. wasn't a great practice. But like, I mean, she did it unknowingly, you know. So when she first showed me the cut of the film, the film itself was so powerful. I mean, it was very powerful film without any music or anything. The performances were so real. But of course, there was this issue with sound because a lot of scenes, there was a lot of wind flapping on the mics. Right. Of course, there was no separate sound recordist in that whole film. All of it was recorded by her. She mounted a zoom for in above her camera. So there was a lot of handling noise as well. Wind. There was a problem with the perspective of the dialogues. Like if the characters were standing too far from each other, you could only get one character. The other character wasn't that loud, you know, a I lot see. of issues. Yeah. But one thing that I was really clear about is that if we tried to dub that film, it would be totally a disaster because there were so many kids involved in that film. All those actors are non-actors. If you're trying to put those non-actors in a studio and expecting them to reenact those scenes, it's never going to work. You can spend years on that film. It will never sound the same, you know. So. Since we didn't have any other option, we kind of totally sat down on getting it clean as far as we can. And till date also, I know like, you know, the dialogues and everything aren't that great. A lot of things are not fully understandable, but that's organic, I feel. And at least it makes you feel connected to the film. If we had dubbed that film, I'm not sure if we would have got that same effect. <laughs> 
I am inclined to agree. I couldn't imagine it being dubbed because, yeah, like you said, it feels very organic and it works regardless of some of the issues that might be there. What I did, you know, in that film, Uh on over and above the noise of the dialogues and all, I laid more subtle noises with regards to the ambiences and effects and everything. So that kind of complemented each other and made you believe that you are back in that village in Assam. Okay. Yeah, so I kind of build my ambiences and everything depending on the tonal quality of the dialogues. So if the dialogues were too thin in a sequence, I kind of used ambiences which were also thin and not very full. I mean, the audience won't be able to make out that, but he or she will feel like something is not right in this one. Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone can say, okay, this ambience is good and this dialogue is not great or this folly is bad. But of course, if something works, it works. And if something doesn't, it doesn't. I was watching one of your short films. It's called Cube, And (laughs) God, this must have been a blast to do, at least from a sound design perspective. And what I wanted to note about it is that, you know, it's shot on film. It has a very grainy, sort of low quality look to it. Mm -hmm. When I hear the sound, it has as well, a particular type of like lo-fi quality. It's like you were able to look at the footage and capture the essence of like that film grain and the film noise and put it into your sound. What was that experience like? That was one of our student projects back in the Institute. I won't say all that was intentional. There were a lot of mistakes in that film. And I think all those mistakes kind of compounded to make you believe that it's working. (laughs) But yeah. Okay. (laughs) But it was fun because as a sound designer, you know, you are looking for things where you can experiment because I firmly believe and still believe that any institute where you should just try all the possibilities, what all can be there, you know, it's better to experiment and fail in the institute and know that what is a mistake and what doesn't work, what works, and then maybe build Mm -hmm. on that Mm -hmm. and try not to repeat those mistakes. If you see all my projects in the Institute, I was quite lucky to be, you know, doing projects which were quite experimental and very less dialogues and all. And I have a natural inclination towards films which have lesser dialogues because when it's too much being said, you know, you lose a lot. So, yeah, I mean, it was interesting to kind of doing projects uh, which were a bit experimental in nature in the Institute and then build up on that. How can you tell if you've over-designed a scene? What's the line that you draw there? Sometimes, let's say you're working on a scene on a particular day and you get so involved in that scene that you start trying out a lot of things. And after a point, you totally lose the perspective or subjectivity of it. So a good yardstick to kind of correct it is not visit that scene for a day or two and then come and watch it with a fresh mind. And then you instantly know that what is wrong and what is right in that scene. Another way is I feel also maybe you can get a feedback from someone who doesn't know the film or the script in any way. Someone's judgment or interpretation that you have trust in and show that particular thing, see how they react. That is also one thing. And of course, the director definitely is a very good yardstick to kind of know if it's working or not. Because, see, at the end of the day, it's the director who's going to say, okay, it's working, it's not. 
of course, there would be scenes where you would debate and say, no, okay, this is working. And then maybe arrive at a middle path or you go by the director's version or you go by my version or whatever. That keeps on happening. That's a creative discussion. But like, let's say Govinder is someone who really doesn't like too much jugglery or trickery with sounds. So he wants it very simple, believable in the realistic way. So I don't try and do anything which would make him uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's more always natural and all. It's similar with Rima. But if you see Rahul machines that I had done, although it's all natural sound, but it's quite heavily designed in the sense because we're just trying to totally create that ambience of that factory. And we had mixed that film in Atmos also. So it was a 7.1.2 mix and it was totally immersive. So totally depends on the director, how they perceive and interpret sound. So you kind of have to understand that and take it from there. Okay. And, you know, I was reading that for the film Arrival, I don't know if you've seen that one, Mm -hmm. the, the sound designers there used... The sound of pigs, camels, they use the sound of like New Zealand birds and Maori flutes to create the very distinct sound of the aliens. Mm -hmm. Do decisions like this simply come from knowing sounds really well or extensive experimentation and trial and error? It's a mix of both. Because sometimes you kind of chance upon some sounds just accidentally. Now, this particular approach is quite an old trick with regards to sound using animal sounds and slowing it down. It has been used in innumerable number of projects and a lot of it has been done. Even all the Jurassic Park films, all the dinosaur sounds are all pig or donkey or lion or, you know, slowed down and kind of tweaking it in terms of the tonal balance, maybe pulling it octave higher down, adding some distortion. You know, just mix and match of various things. And there are plugins also, like there is one plugin called Dehumanizer, wherein you kind of dehumanizes it, (laughs) demonizes it. And in ghost stories, if you watch the Bakas segment, Mm. so there are a lot of creatures and they're coming and shouting and all of it is happening. So I've also used Mm. a lot of pigs and uh, bear and lion and all of it, mix and match of slowing it down, pacing it up distorting, uh, EQing it, octave high, down. So a lot of things and uh, kind of makes you believe that it's a monster. When you're back at the studio, what kinds of software and hardware are you typically using for your work? When it comes to film sound design, (laughs) there is only one software, which is a complete monopoly, which is Avid Pro Tools. First process of of film post-production, which is dialogue editing, where you clean the dialogues, face match the dialogues and uh, balance it properly. So that entire whole process is done in Pro Tools. Your mm, track mm. name where you lay your ambiences and effects, that also happens in Pro Tools. And your poly recording and your poly balancing also happens on Pro Tools. Because this software is everywhere, in the sense, of whichever studio you go to, this is the standard. So everyone kind of works in that software. Of course, there are other softwares which are good in processing sounds where you kind of do all the trickery, do all the effects, channelizing or structuring your sound tone, and then taken out from there and kind of imported in Pro Tools. There is one software called Ableton Live. That's a very good software to be designing your certain sounds, maybe whooshes or circuit noises or glitches or any kind of machining sounds. It does it quite well. There's another software called Reaper that is also quite good in terms of designing sounds. Also have quite a lot of plugins, which kind of helps you shape sounds in the way you want. 
And of course, your background score is being done by the background score guy. And he is doing it also separately. He might be using some other software, but eventually he'll give me WAV files out, which I can import it in Pro Tools. Okay, right. What advice do you have for people looking to get into sound design professionally? I feel you have to be a bit on the analytical bent of mind. You know, if you understand a bit of the physics of sound and the mathematics of sound as well, like reverb time, you know, delay time, you would eventually learn it any which case later on. It definitely helps, but it's definitely not the sole criteria that if you know that you'll be a great sound designer. A bit of understanding of music absolutely helps because it's all about getting the beat of the film. I always feel like being a drummer kind of really helped me a lot in the sense, kind of find the odd time signatures in a film and kind of, you know, just trying to understand what's the beat of the film and all. Also, this year of, uh, you know, noticing things also helps. It's like printing in your brain. And you can always kind of recall it at a later stage when you land up on something of a similar situation in a film. And then you know, okay, I was there in that mall and it was sounding like this. So just to know that how sound behaves in certain environments, like how we sound in a room, how we sound outside, how we sound in a loo, you know, that yeah. reflections. If you know how things sound or start listening or paying attention to sounds which are happening around you, then I think it's a very good beginning as to kind of interpreting things at a later stage when you are going to do sound for a film. It sounds like there's a lot to it, but I'm guessing when you've learned everything that you have, for instance, at a great institute like FTII, it becomes a lot simpler, I'm guessing. I feel what FTII does or any other institute does is kind of make you ready for the drill. That you know certain things, okay, this is how it happens, this is how it works, but it's hardly that easy. It's like learning and unlearning everything. And especially something like sound, because the technology is ever-changing. Every day there is some new plugin, new software, some new technique of mixing, some new different approach. And if you're not in tune, you kind of might lose out also, you know? So you have to be kind of be updated and abreast. So that also helps. But I think it's a constant learning. You just keep on learning every day. And uh, yeah, yeah, that is the entire process, I think. I see. And do you have one film that you would recommend for people to learn sound designing from? If you just had to name one film, which would that be? Stalker. Stalker, oh, because Krakowski. it was shown to us in the first or second week. That was one film that we heard it and all of us came out and we hadn't heard anything like this, you know, <laughs> what is this happening, you know. So it definitely got us really interested and we kind of have revisited this film later on as well, quite a few number of times. But if you're talking about directors that have really influenced me, would be definitely Tarkovsky and um, Kurosawa. Uh, Bresson, also Manuscript, is also one film which has really influenced me in terms of sound design. Bogman, of course, uh, Autumn Sonata. And I guess Persona also I really like. And, uh, oh, God, yes. Lots of disturbing sounds yeah, in that one. Yeah. Uh, Kubrick, of course, how can I miss him? I think For he's sure. like a true master, no doubt about that. Jacques Tati. Jacques Tati definitely is one of my favorite directors in terms of how he used to interpret sound because most of his films were without any dialogue and it was all effect. And if you consider those films have been done in the 60s and the kind of precision that they had with sound, it's like totally unbelievable. 
Jean Pierre Junet also I like his films absolutely a lot. And Indian films, of course, I mean everyone says like it's Ray and Ghatak. Yeah. And yeah. One film from Ritwik Ghatak which I really was totally blown away when I had seen that film. It was Ajantrik. Uh-huh. This film about this man and his car, and he treats that car as his own friend and communicates with that car as a living being. And so interesting the way the sound was approached at that point of time. It was sixty or seventy, but you know, sometimes I felt like, how can we go so wrong if things were that great? <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Just one last question for you: Is there a specific scene or moment from a film you're most proud of that you've done? Couple of scenes in Govinda's film in Chotikoot, definitely one that storm sequence because of course that we created that storm right from scratch. There was no wind noise or anything there. It was mm. totally built from scratch, and uh, I guess the beauty of it was maybe we could manage to pull off something which was believable and kind of added a different dimension to the film. And also that sequence where the dog is being killed. Of course, we didn't kill right. the dog and. That was actually a different dog altogether. There were two dogs that they they had bred for this role. So those sounds that had been recorded of the dog being killed were actually of his brothers, oh, who was wow, in okay. uh, Bombay. And I spent like two three nights with that dog. And basically, the sounds that he's emitting were actually when uh, he was being given food, but was not being allowed to eat it. So okay, yeah, I that see. was quite uh, interesting. Yeah. And also, there is some breathing sounds, like some breathing squeaks and all. That is again from a different dog altogether. That was, I think, from a Pomeranian, and that dog had a breathing problem. He used to make the sound invariably while he's breathing. But I found it really interesting, so I recorded that and kind of placed it over this dog sound uh, towards the end when he was kind of breathing his last before he dies. Okay. So yeah, it was interesting. I'm sure there are other things which I'm not being able to recollect, but since this is my first okay. film, so I have a lot of memories from that. Well, I am certainly gonna remember those descriptions when I watch the film again. <laughs> I, um, it'll help me sort of understand where they're coming from a bit better. But thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. I've learned so much, and I hope that you've enjoyed it. But thanks for coming on the show. Joe Smith. Thank you so much. I mean, because I don't know if I'm, you know, worthy enough to kind of share uh, yet uh, what I think sound design should be. Because, I think this was great. Uh, because I mean, I to be frank, I'm still learning. I mean, I, I really uh, don't know what I said today um, is actually the right thing, and uh, it could be totally different if you come and talk to me in the next six months. You know, I could be totally sure. saying the opposite thing. That okay, no, this is the right, right thing. You know that what I said before was um, maybe not that right. So uh, it's a continuous learning process with each and every film. You keep on learning. Hopefully, you know I just keep on uh, learning and kind of be more yeah. smart into yeah. understanding what works and what doesn't, and maybe uh, you know yeah. bring it forth in my work. So yeah. All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up. Thanks everyone for tuning into the credit roll. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Shu Smith and uh, join us for the next conversation. The Credit Roll is an original podcast by Jamun. The show is hosted by Abhinit Kumar. Producers are Odayan Bejal and Natasha Rati Kapoor. Editors are Abhinit Kumar and Paras Korong. The artwork is by Sirat Swakrambam and the theme song is Song of Sadhana by Jesse Gallagher.